0: Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. God loves vitality and intimacy and my subject is intimacy through prayer. It's a reasonably difficult subject because although Michael and Jenny say that I'm fairly intimate in my relationship with God, I don't really, I mean, I'd like to be more intimate. I'll just leave it at that, okay? God's vitality and intimacy is around this congregation at this time and you're a Christianly lucky group of people here this afternoon. It's my first point. It's not even my first point. It's my introduction. Now, when you, when you look at the whole thing of, of um, uh, intimacy, uh, you've always got to start off with your relationship with, with God through Christ. You can't have intimacy until you actually have a relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and that's what we really need. We need actually to receive the closeness that he wants to give us. And, and, and in actual facts, often our hands are closed for varying reasons. All right. Often ones that we don't even like ourselves and wouldn't like to have, but we just find we can't open them. So I, was, I am asking you that at the response, the, your response to what I'm going to say in the next 20 minutes would be, one, to open your hands because your body's connected to your head, which is connected to your heart, which is connected to your spirit and your soul. And if you do that, at least you're sort of letting Jesus have a go at all parts of you. you know. And, and maybe if you cup your hands, you know, the spirit might just breathe in that. I don't know. But I think if we actually, if God is intimate in this place at this time, we need to just make every effort to try and let him into us. Is that fair enough? So we understand and experience that. But I want you to ask yourself this question to Jesus. Jesus, how do you want me to, to relate well to you now? How do you want me to relate well to you? In other words, you give him a chance to say something about his intimacy with you. Is that fair enough? I don't think there's any prayer braggers tonight. So the first bit of that about, you know, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees uh, who stand up and brag how good their prayers are. I don't think anyone here is doing that, so we'll leave that. But for me, prayer is like being intimate with a friend. It's like a wrestling match. And at times it's like a great appeal from me to a monarch. And where Jesus mentions room here. Uh, it can be translated a storehouse. It's a bit. He's saying, you know, go into your inner room. He's saying, go into your walk-in pantry, because it's a storehouse, and so you can get stuff out of it. So that when you're in that room, there is things to be given in that room from God to you. That's why he wants you in your inner room, because there's actually treasures in there and there's food in there. And if your parents are nice, to you, there might be chocolate in there, and all the rest of that. Now, that's a free gift that we get, all right? And the preacher's dilemma when you start talking about a thing like going into your inner room and praying on a regular basis, people's heads start going down. Because if I said, Who's been in their inner room today? I would probably have a bit of a sort of a slight head down on a lot of people. You know what I mean? So often, what you're trying to do to lift people's heads up to look at Jesus in actual facts, you can turn them down into sort of a sense of, of, of that feeling of. of um, Legalism, that's the word I'm going to use here. And and the Sermon on the Mount, which goes from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, is actually a block where, if you read it, it's harder to keep than the jolly Ten Commandments. You go back to the Ten Commandments and it says stuff about, you know, just leave other women alone. And Jesus says, don't even think about, you know what I mean? Or if you call someone a fool, you liable to condemnation you know what i mean and you think shut the front door i might as well go back to the old testament it's easier to keep than the new testament (laughs) so what do you do with that now i'll tell you what you do with that uh, and you you know you're going to have to trust me a little bit on this but if you look at the start of luke's gospel you'll see why this could be true what happened was, and we were talking about it in our small group. In our group, we were saying that we, a lot of us, knew people who had had an unbelievable experience of God and the Holy Spirit in a, a church and had, had just been completely transformed. And eighteen months later, they were they are not even in church. How can that be? And and you see, they knew that in the early church. And so these people that got Matthew chapter five to chapter seven was getting a slap of teaching from Jesus, but on every point that they were actually being taught. And we need to be taught. And if people aren't taught, they will go away from their faith because it's hard to be a Christian. you know. After the, all the emotions has gone away, it's darn difficult at times. So what, what they were doing was they were giving these people who were fired up and understood intimacy with God through Christ, through their conversion, they're now giving them the teaching of how Jesus wants them to live. So it's a collation of a lot of teaching that Jesus gives, put together so that people will get out of their first state, which they call the Kurugma states, where there's been the proclamation of the good news about Jesus, and they'll survive what into what into through the didache, the teaching time, into mature Christians. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's why you get sort of tough statements there. You have to always put a, a little parameter at the start of that. I can understand this because the power of Christ is at work in me. His kingdom is at work in me. And when I, when I need forgiveness for some thought, I know instantly that that is there. You know, Jesus is there, therefore forgiveness is there. So that you don't drop your heads when you read it. You actually sort of say, praise God, this is all right. I'm, I'm, I'm learning something here. All right? So when it comes to stuff like, I'll just this is my final little bit on this side of it. Um, when it comes to actually that teaching like that, we don't actually, I don't think we should use words like teaching ethics or teaching doctrine, but we need to use the word teaching lived faith because that's an intimate thing. It's in a relationship. You're learning about Jesus from other people in the presence of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. So if you actually look at it from that way, I think you're, you're on a bit of a winner there. All right? Now, I've got a book here, um, and it's my it's my diary for this year I, I go to the cheapest place i possibly can and i get the cheapest book i possibly can where you've got a page per day so that you know how close you are to the actual date that you're supposed to be on and then i've got a thing i've ripped out a uh, photo photocopied out of something else i've read the bible every year for over 40 years all right so i've done that partly because i'm pretty slow at learning all right um and two, because you think if you're going to be a pastor, if I don't read the jolly good book, who's going to, you know? So I've done it for that reason. But I, I will say, and this is sort of a, for you university, very intelligent people doing ex- experimental works, over 40 plus years of experimentation in this way, I can tell you that there's an ease of intimacy that I've got with Jesus that I wouldn't have had if I'd have gone to my inner room, you know what I mean? So all I'm saying to you is that I'm not going to tell you to go and do it, but what I'm going to say, if you do do it, it's actually worth the effort because there's intimacy that comes out of it. So you're doing it not because I'm saying, go and do it. I could just about make Jeremy do it because so smart. I could just punch him until he... <laughs> but I couldn't get Tom wherever Tom is. I've tried and it just doesn't work, all right? So we get called into this stuff. We, we get called into it. We don't actually do it because we're being condemned into it. I follow a method. I turn on a, a music, like the best Christian music I can find, because it actually focuses you. I use a red, a four-color baro for good, bad, and, and sin, and all the rest of it, because I, I lose my. I thought I start thinking about lunch and all the rest of that, <laughs> it keeps me on. Anyway, that's that's sort of a discipline way of praying. And uh, 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 another, I'll tell you another way that is really about the, the intimacy of God and, and the grace of God. Um, it happened when we were actually, uh, I would have, probably about the time I met Michael and Jen, we were in Golden Grove. And I'd had this big argument with a farmer up above Port Wakefield about the Masonic Lodge. Some of you don't probably know about the Masonic Lodge. And this farmer, Morris's name was, was a grandmaster in Port Wakefield of the Masonic Lodge. And they wanted to have, take the normal Sunday morning service and have a wake for a man who had died who belonged to the Masonic Lodge. Now... I, I, gave, uh, I gave Morris uh, on, all my th- reasons why it was wrong and blah, blah, blah. And he and I got into a fairly an- animated discussion in his kitchen because we were having a finance meeting in the lounge room. This is supper time. And the other minister from Balaclava, who's older and wiser than me, came in and said, Brant, you go out to the other room and, uh, and I'll, deal, I'll, I'll deal with, uh, you know, I'll talk to Morris. All right. Anyway, Morris is somebody who didn't hold a grudge, right? So he, he didn't really care. and We got on with all, all right with each other. I played footy with his, his son and, uh, and we left and his wife was treasurer of the whole show. So she was paying me. I was being nice to her, I can tell you that. Um, anyway, we went through uh, five years up in the Riverland, came back to Port, down here to, to Golden Grove. And someone rings up and says, oh, Morris is really, really sick in the modbury hospital and i thought i've got a lot to do but i suppose i'll go you know what else can you do so i go in there to see morris right and and he was really crook right he had you know when you get really crook you got wires and tubes as well he was had both wires and tubes right and he couldn't talk he was so crook so i prayed for him and went home and uh Somehow or other, someone must have communicated that he wasn't in hospital anymore. And I didn't know whether he was alive or dead. That's the truth, because I just got on and did whatever I was doing. I did my duties, in a sense. Anyway, six months later on, someone said, oh, Morris and Coralie are up in the Kimberleys They're driving around Australia. So I knew he was alive still, all right? And he gets back down to Adelaide, and he, he rings me up, and he says, I want to take you out to my favourite restaurant for a meal. And I thought, well... This is Morris. He and I have had a bit of an issue or two. I don't really care too much about the prayer I did over him, but I just did a quick one and went. And anyway, so we, we, we catch up for this meal, right? And, and you know, at least come out of this flat, no, quick prayers if they work. You know, you do get a free meal, all right? <laughs> um, he, Morris says to me, he says to me, he says, Brant, when you prayed, God said to me, take all the tubes and wires out and go home. And he's a tough sort of a guy, right? He's the sort of guy that would do that. So the next morning, he just said to the staff, um, take all the tubes out, I'm going home. So he took, they took all the tubes over and he went home. Wow. So what I'm saying is, is that you can get too serious about prayer sometimes if you just do it. You, you know, The grace of God and the intimacy of God works into people's lives. So you've got... You've got the two sides. You've got the, you know, the inner room where you, you deliberately go that way and you've got the spontaneous that God just uses anyway. Is that fair enough? And we're all involved with that all the time. Now, um, sort of a bit of a change of direction, I suppose, but there should be a slide up there about an ABC article up behind me. Uh, and it interested me because it, it, when I read it online, it, the, the question at the front was, where were you before you were conceived? And the answer in this article was nowhere, because there was nothing outside of the universe. And it was an article written by a guy called Julian Ber, Ber, Berenget, who's a theoretical physicist at the University of New South Wales. And he talks about the birth of the universe, and he talks about it being 13 billion plus years ago. But he goes on a long time about how there was nothing before, there was no time and space before the birth of the universe. Nothing. So you weren't there before you were born. That's what he was saying, right? Nothing at all. Then he goes about the birth of the universe and how it all began and how it, how it sort of slowly grew. And he talks about uh, eventually about something that they've actually done. I've sort of I'm not a researchy person at all, but they've actually and Einstein actually was the guy, you know who Einstein is. most of you. theory of what is it? Relativity. Anyway, he, he said that if, if you could measure things, um, radio waves or, or uh, electronic waves, you should be able to get back to about 350,000 years after the birth of the universe from a Big Bang. And in the last few years they've done it. Did you know that? Einstein said you couldn't do it. So there's a bit of truth in what's going on here, right? So the two things that they use for all this is a standard model of particle physics. I don't know who invented that. And then you've got Einstein's general theory of Rel- Relativity. At the end of the article, the guy says, well, what's going to happen in the end? And he says, there's two things that may happen in the end. And one is everything might just keep expanding and expanding and expanding and go cold and dark until there's nothing. Or everything might shrink back and become like a little pot of hot soup about as big as a a football. But we know, if you read right through to the last two chapters, chapters of the good book, that God is going to eventually bring in a literal new heaven and a new earth. So that's where the things really do differ. I mean, I like looking at that stuff. And Julian, this guy, was quite, quite keen to say the whole way through, look, this is all theoretical, this is all, you know what I mean? So I'm not saying it's fact or anything. But this is what we do know from the good book, and this is the next slide as well, about what really does happen. You got time and space and time and space starts very small there uh, let there be and things grow and things grow and by the way stephen hawking uh, it took him a couple of years to tell people after he really believed in the in the start of the universe that there was a start to the universe to go and to actually go public on it you know why because he knew the muslims and the christians and the others that believed in a creation understanding creation would come to him and say we told you so. and he didn't, want to be, he didn't want to be poked in the chest in a sense. So that's how time and space starts. And, and, and around time and space, and this is a point about intimacy, is a God who is the Father who loves what he's created, all right? You've got the Son who is there and saves creation. And you've got the Holy Spirit that empowers the world. And so the whole lot is dynamic. And the whole lot has a beginning and the whole lot has an end. And you can see there, you know, you talk about is there one God or three and all the rest of that. There is the word let us do this stuff. So there is the plural there when everything is created. And some people talk about the divine dance, but I can't dance, so I don't like that idea. And someone has written uh, the divine dance. The unending flow of giving and receiving between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit Is the pattern of reality? Is the pattern of reality, and we're all invited to participate into the rhythms of the new creation. Does that make sense? In other words, there's a dynamic God. uh, Well, I'd, I'd rather put it something like this: I think the whole of creation and the creation of us is God having fun within Himself. He just loves it, and He wants to be intimate. So you can get that out of the good book if we look through there from the start to the finish. I think one thing that, where Jesus does say in verse 8 here, where he's, uh, Jesus says, your father who knows what you need before you ask him will actually reward you. Now, people say, well, if he already knows, why do I have to ask? It's a Fair enough question. But if you look at that diagram, he can't help it, God can't help it if he's not moving through time and space because he's outside time and space. So he's got to be in front of us as well as behind us. Now think about that for a second. So in a way, he does know all things because he doesn't move through time and space. He created time and space for us so that we could get to know him and be intimate with him. So he does know what we know before I ask him, but then to ask is really important. Like with Morris Taylor, if I hadn't have gone down and done a pretty quick prayer on him, Uh, he would never have heard God's voice. So our prayers are effective, you know what I mean? So you've got to live with the two. In a way, I think, you know, someone was saying about our prayers and God's prayers and getting them answered and whether he understands and knows. They said something like, our our prayers are like the desires as a two-year-old and God sees like our mum. Does that make sense? Now, um, I want to talk for a second about How do we get into that position where we just sort of feel that we can't, we're not intimate with God? All right. And I think we've got to go back to Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, because that's where uh, the serpent says, Does God really say you can't eat from that tree? Does he really say that? You know, if you're talking to someone and you're being very, you know, you're trying to get into an intimate conversation and they say, Really? You know what I mean? Put a downer on it, okay? Put a question in your mind, question your sanity, question where you're going, you know what I mean? And that's exactly what the serpent did to Eve in that situation. Did God, is, is God such a jerk as keep you away from a really good tree? You know what I mean? Uh, get you to actually second guess who God is and whether he's really good or not. That's the first thing I want to bet. There's, there's that mocking that comes with, with the serpent uh, in relation to us as human beings. And we feel that, I think, when we, we actually go to a room to pray. We think, well, is anything going to happen in here? And it's actually the serpent who is mocking us, saying and mocking God, saying that God and us are not intimate enough to really get something out of this. You know what I mean? So you've got to watch the mocking, all right, firstly. Secondly, there's the lie that comes there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, where the serpent says, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from the tree, you'll see that what really is going on. Well, it's just a straight lie, you know. Uh, God did say it. And if they did eat, they would die, all right? That's fair enough. I think that's right. And, and, and it, what coming out of the lie is, is, is us saying to us, you know, God knows the moment. You'll actually be able to see what's really going. It's the temptation to say, if I do what I really, really want to do, it'll be better than what God's got for me. If I really eat this fruit and know that good and evil, well, then that's better than what God is going to have for me because he's saying, no, don't eat from that tree. And then, of course, once we've eaten, well, then there's a dissociation. There's Right from the beginning, there's a dissociation in terms of our ability to receive love from God because we basically uh, went that particular way. Thirdly, in this situation, you've got the act of our wills and the, and the woman took the fruit and ate it. And we get that in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, sorry. Uh, oh, about us doing these three things. God took a huge gamble in creating us. An unbelievable gamble in creating us. It would have been a right if he'd created us like a horse or a, a cat or a chook. But he created us in his own image. All right. And, and that, that was an unbelievably brave thing that God did, because once we're made in his image, he's got to give us freedom of will, because he's got freedom of will, all right? And, and some people say, you know, when God said to them, don't eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, and they saw how good the tree was, why was God doing that? I mean, why did he even set them up in that way? Or why didn't he say, if you eat from that tree, your son and your, one of your sons will kill your other son. It'll cause unbelievable mayhem that'll go on for 5,000 years afterwards. But if he told them that, well, then they wouldn't have actually freely chosen what God spoke to them. They would have done it for cost-benefits analysis. I'm not going to do this because it's just going to wreck the world. So in a sense, God had to sit that tree up. And then humanity had the right to choose, because was made in the image of God, whether we would, would trust the voice of God or whether we wouldn't. Is that fair enough? Yeah. And this afternoon as we sit here, there is an intimate God through his son who is being intimate with us and he wants us to trust him. The serpent's a stinker, you know, and, and if you want to know about the serpent, you, you go to Jesus and see what he has to say about him. Some of you are probably finding that a bit hard to believe. But if you read John chapter 8, verse 4 to 44, Jesus says about the serpent, he was a murderer from the beginning. Well, that happened, yeah, right on dot with, that, with Cain and Abel. He's always hated the truth, which is in the first chapter 3 of Genesis. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, he's consistent with his character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So just watch out in terms of intimacy and prayer. Uh, watch out that you don't start listening to the negativity that comes out of that side of things. Yeah, that's good. Because God, God wants us to be intimate. Jesus, as Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 says, Jesus twove, chose his 12, he, he named his 12 apostles and he said, I have chosen you to be with me, to be with me. And with there means to be intimate in your relationship with me. The thing that actually, I think, brings out intimacy is full-on laughter. <coughs> Excuse me, the opposite to actually, um, the, op- the opposite to, uh, of, of that sense of, oh no, I'll say it again. Where there's where there's full-on laughter, like we're having a bit of now, there's always intimacy, right? You can't laugh really with a friend without there being intimacy. Yeah. And, and, and as soon as we, you know, Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree, they wrecked that. They didn't want laughter. They didn't want. And so we become hiders. We we hide from each other. We try and hide from ourselves. And and God continues to be what He's always been, which is a seeker. And He says. They hid themselves among the tree in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And that's what's going on all the time. God is constantly saying to humanity and to every member of humanity, where are you? And he's trying to get to each person in the best way he can, mainly through his church. So that's why the church has to really be as good as it possibly can in terms of intimacy and knowing Christ. Now, I'll just spend a little bit of time on how Jesus deals with the mocking, the lie, and the sinner, right? And God said to Adam and Eve, obey me and you'll live. And they, they don't, we don't. And God says to Jesus, obey me about this tree because it's all about a tree here and you'll be crushed. And he did obey God. Jesus climbs the tree of death and turns it into the tree of life for you and for me. And here's the great, that's a great reversal of sin. So sin has been dealt with there, right? And what is sin? It's putting ourselves only where God deserves to be. And the tree of salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be, on the cross, and then that deals with our sin. It deals with our lie as well. The lie that we have been sold that God, we can't really trust God. Our lack of intimacy with God is because we don't believe that God really, 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 really loves us and wants to be intimate with us. So what we need to do is watch Jesus climb the tree of death and for him turning it into the tree of life for you and me, it's the only crowbar that's strong enough for us to actually believe that God loves us and is intimate with us. When you watch Christ die and understand why he's dying for you, that is the crowbar that will liberate you to be intimate with God because you trust God again. And this also, it makes a, a, a mess of... No, Jesus climbing the tree makes a mess of, the, of uh, the, the, these things. Um, with the mocking... Oh, the mocking, that's the last thing I wanted to talk about. He, Jesus deals with the mocking. He turns the sneer into something else. Now, when I was at theological college, I you know, owing to circumstances beyond myself, the, the student body elected me president of the student union almost as soon as I got to college. And coming from a Bible college, which they call the funny farm, is unusual for someone to you know, get... Anyway, that's where I was. And because I was there, I was involved with the Lutheran seminary and the two lots of Anglican St. Michael's up in the hills and the other one down here and the Catholics, which was a big one. And we used to organise film nights and stuff like that. And we had a sports night this night, right? And we were playing basketball. We might have been at Luther Sem in North Adelaide, right? And the two sides that were playing, right, were the Catholics and the Lutherans. And there were some really big blokes playing. You know, there's a Yuba gang. He's about 25 foot high. All right. Nearly as tall as Tom, but not quite. <laughs> and another guy I, I, did, I didn't know. All right. And, and these guys are playing basketball, you know, and it was pretty serious. You, you play... You know, I've played football for Park and West against other places, and it's pretty serious stuff once you start. Well, I take it seriously anyway. <laughs> these these two guys, these two great big guys in the middle of the basketball court, believe it or not, started to argue about the reformation, which happened in the 16th century. <laughs> and they were saying to each other, pointing, You started it, you started it, right? And then they realized how stupid it looked. The grace of God, the intimacy of God is free and they had enough brains in that realisation to put their hands on each other's shoulders and laugh and just run down the court. Freedom in Christ actually leads to laughter which leads to intimacy. Is that the point I want to make? And I think that's just really important to understand. My final slide is on Shasta. You all know who Shasta is? Alright, anyone has that read Narnia Tales, alright? Narnia, Narnia. Uh, I'm trying to learn um, uh, about um, fairy tales. What else do you call that? Fantasy, because all my grandkids are into fantasy. They don't go to church. So I've read all of Narnia twice in one year, which has nearly killed me. (laughs) In the third story, there's seven stories of Narnia, that you've got this guy Shasta, right? And, And in this particular story... Uh, he works out, he, he's in this really foreign place, and he's been sold a lie on who he really is. He's actually a Narnian. Now, the Narnians are humans, and the head of Narnia or the person that supervised Narnia is this dirty, great big lion, right? He doesn't actually appear very often. He, he's, his fur actually shines gold, right? Like he's, he's a big, bigger than a normal lion. His face is stern, but it's unbelievably loving. And if, if you actually have reverence for him and he licks you, it's just like being blown over by the Holy Spirit, you know. So young Shasta is on his way from this ugly place. He's been through a place called Tashban, Ba'an, all right, which is a really terrible place to get through. He would had a friend, he had a talking horse, which you'd have to ask C.S. Lewis about that to work out how horses can talk. He's lost his horse in, in this city, which is a very, very negative city. And he, they had to get through it. They got broken up. And, and the other lass who's with him, they're both like 12-year-old Ash-ish kids, right? They both get, the whole lot get broken up. And he's, they all decided they'll meet on the other side of the city they get out, out on the edge of this desert n- near these tombs, right? So you can see this little 12-year-old boy and Lewis is a good rider. Here he is, he's got to go all the way to Narnia. He's found out now that this mob are going to attack Narnia and surprise them and take over Aslan. Uh, uh, what's his name? Aslan City, right? So he has got a huge job in front of him, that little kid. You know, a huge job. And um, Aslan's been around, but he hasn't noticed him. He's turned up as a lion to scare him and his horse and the other horse in the right direction. So he he doesn't know Aslan all that well. And while he sits there and he waits, he doesn't know what's going to happen. While he sits there and he waits, he's scared. He's got to go across this desert. He's got to do it. He's got to get to, to Narnia. This cat turns up, right? This little cat. Well, it was actually a big cat. And this cat keeps on sitting on his, uh, uh, sort of turning away from him and, and putting his back up against his back, right? And he feels the warmth of this cat, all right? And he feels comforted by that. And when the cat's there he can sleep and he can feel at peace. So at night he will sleep when the cat is actually touching his back and in the daytime the cat's not there. Anyway, later on, a long time later on, Ashland says, well that was me. I just got myself down to cat size, which he can do, all right. And for us sitting here this afternoon, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus, that Jesus is here with us, and, and whether we actually feel him necessarily or not, there's a few things going on here. One is we're all just kids, you know. And Aslan, Jesus has got a project for each one of us that seems often beyond us. But we can get there, you know. We're all just ch- kids going through life with, with a lion, with Jesus, all right. And, and this afternoon, what I would like us to feel as we put out our hands now is intimacy through the warmth of the fur of a cat or the warmth or the presence of Jesus is that fair enough so if you don't mind doing that if you just want to put your hands out and we'll all go through the agony of having a minute minute of asking us the question Jesus how do you want me to be more intimate with you that's the question you ask now Jesus how do you want me to be more intimate with you Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au and don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.